Tonight's scripture is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For, for the life was manifested, which we have seen it, and bared witness, and showed unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, the passage that Steve read for us a moment ago. We'll actually be looking at the entirety of the chapter as we think about the theme, The Real Deal. And really what we're going to be focusing on is the fact that Jesus is the real deal. And as we look at 1 John chapter 1, we want to think about some of the great blessings and privileges that we have in Christ. I want to begin by, first of all, emphasizing the fact that I do appreciate your presence tonight, particularly in light of the fact that it is the Super Bowl. And I know that That is a big uh, temptation on the part of many to stay home and watch the Super Bowl, but we're glad that you you have chosen to be here tonight. And I think about some of the great blessings that we enjoy in life, and one of the great blessings that we have is to come together on the first day of the week and to worship God. Tonight as we look at 1 John chapter 1, we begin by thinking about the theme, Jesus is the real deal. You have probably heard individuals assess the athletic ability of an individual and make the remark, he or she is the real deal. Sometimes we hear individuals examine the character, the life, the virtues of individuals. And they will say concerning a certain person, he or she is the real deal. I believe that when we begin to examine the life of Jesus, we find out that he is the real deal. When John wrote this book in the latter part of the first century, one of the problems that he confronted, as well as some of the other disciples in that period of time, was the threat of Gnosticism. The Gnostics, they had the idea that matter was inherently evil. And so their dilemma was simply this. They could not fathom sinless deity inhabiting human flesh. And so John attempts to, in a very strong way, emphasize the fact that Jesus Christ, as the second member of the Godhead, did indeed inhabit human flesh. And so we're going to look at chapter 1 and think for a moment or two about the theme, Jesus is the real deal. The first thing that I call your attention to is the importance of having faith in Christ. And when we talk about having faith in Christ, we are underscoring the faith that we have in a person, that being Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead. And as you look to the scriptures, you'll find out 
that the Bible stresses his manifestation in the flesh. And there are really two things that John addresses in the first couple of verses, first three verses of chapter 1. The first thing that he does in an effort to bolster their faith in Christ is to emphasize the pre-incarnate state of Christ. And that word simply carries us back to the idea that Jesus existed prior to taking the form of human flesh. I said a moment ago that he is the second member of the Godhead. And he was present at the creation. And so look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Reminiscent of John's words when he set forth the life of Jesus in his gospel narrative. As a matter of fact, John began by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In verse 3 he points out that all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, as the second member of the Godhead, was the one responsible for the creation of the world. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read of the Godhead involved in the creation of man. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. There are a lot of people in our world today that have difficulty understanding the fact that Jesus existed in the very beginning with God. Jesus is eternal, just like God the Father. He has no beginning. He has no ending. Now, that might be difficult for us to, to comprehend, to fathom, but nonetheless, we are to believe it. Well, John said, that which was from the beginning. There's an interesting passage of Scripture found in the book of Micah, chapter 5, at verse 2. And in the book of Micah, in chapter 4, he prophesies of the church as an exalted institution. But in chapter 5, he underscores the birthplace of Jesus. And he speaks of Christ in these terms, whose goings forth are from old time, even from everlasting. In other words, from the days of eternity. That's what we're talking about when we when we stress the pre-incarnate Christ, that He has always existed. And that's what John is alluding to here. He's just taking us back to creation, that which was from when? From the beginning. But then also, not only does John discuss the pre-incarnate state of Christ, but he emphasizes the incarnate state of Christ. And this has to do with the Lord tabernacling in human flesh. Take for, take for instance, John chapter 1, verse 14. John said, And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled in human flesh for the purpose of saving man from sin. Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 1? Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, had prophesied of the Messiah being born of a virgin. An angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream and told Joseph that that which was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And then he went on to say, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. 
And then also in Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer speaks of the fact that a body was prepared for Christ to inhabit. He said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. A body was prepared for Christ to inhabit in the womb of Mary. And so John is going to take off on this and point out that the Christ did indeed inhabit human flesh. And so with that in mind, look at what he says. And he's going to stress some factors that, that help us with our faith in the one that we call Christ. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. We talk about the audible voice of Jesus. These men had the opportunity to hear the Son of God. John, along with James and Peter, they have been considered the three closest apostles to Christ. They spent a lot of time with the Lord. These men had the opportunity to hear the Christ. And so, John said, that which we have heard. And then also drop down in verse 3. Again, he stresses, that which we have seen and heard. Do you remember when Jesus talked about how he was the bread of life in John chapter 6? And many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus said, will you also go away? Simon Peter responded by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. These men had the opportunity to hear the voice of the Son of God. And John is saying, listen, we heard the Son of God. We heard Him with our own ears. But not only does he stress the audible words of Jesus, but also he speaks of having visibly seen Him. Look again. That which we have, or rather that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And then drop down if you would, again in verse 3, that which we have seen. These men saw the Lord. They saw Him firsthand. And so, John is, is simply saying this. When you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, He is someone that we have seen we have visibly seen the Lord. Not only have we visibly seen Him, we have audibly heard Him. But then, then He also stresses the fact that Jesus was verifiable. Look again at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now listen. And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, going back to the pre-incarnate state of Christ, He is an eternal being. But that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so John is really just driving this point home. He is saying we have, we have audibly heard Him. We have visibly seen Him. It is verifiable. We have actually touched Him. Go back to John chapter 20 and look at Jesus as He stands in the midst of His disciples. And they had the opportunity to tell Thomas, who was not present on the first occasion, 
We have seen the Lord. Thomas didn't believe it. Thomas said, unless, unless I can see the proof, I'm not going to believe it. And so eight days later, Jesus appeared to Thomas and he said, Thomas, reach, reach your hand here and put your finger into the print of the nails. That is, into the print of the nails of my hand. Reach your hand here and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. What did Thomas say? Thomas responded by saying, my Lord and my God. It was verifiable. Think also about when Luke recorded the book of Acts. We talk about the birth of the church. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, the Bible says that Jesus showed himself alive for the by the space of 40 days by many infallible proofs. Jesus manifested himself not only to the apostles but to a number of people. Now, you turn over to chapter 2. Peter is preaching the first gospel sermon on Pentecost Day. And Peter tells these people assembled in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day concerning the resurrected Christ, we are witnesses. In chapter 3, verse 15, we have another sermon. And in that sermon, Peter talks about the prince of life. And guess what he says? We are witnesses. They were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now there are a lot of people today that they have, they have some fanciful theories about the resurrection of Christ. They think maybe it was the resurrection of a cause and not really a literal resurrection. Some would say or argue that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Well, that, that would be fraudulent. And here's the question that comes to my mind. When you talk about the Son of God and the fact that these men were saying, we are witnesses, we have seen him, we have seen the resurrected Christ, why would these men be willing to lay down their lives, their lives for, for something that didn't happen, if indeed it didn't happen? The fact of the matter is, it did happen. And John is saying, when you talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what you need to understand is, it is a fact. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, deity, is a fact. F-A-C-T. It's a fact. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2 at verse 9, he said, In Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what John is saying here. John is saying, you want proof? You want faith in Christ? Let me tell you, we have seen him. We have heard him. We have touched him. This is the one you need to put your faith in. But then there's a second thing that we see, and this has to do with our fellowship in Christ. Now, the place of fellowship, obviously, is in the Lord. It's in Christ. One of the, one of the things that strikes me about chapter 1 of the book of John, as well as other passages in the New Testament, is the fact that the early church, the early saints, they were a joyful people. Look, if you would, at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father 
and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. What was the basis of their joy? What had they heard? They had heard, John had just impressed upon their minds the fact that Jesus Christ truly lived. That it was a verifiable fact. That he truly lived among men. But then, what about the blessings of what they had heard? What about the blessings of Christ coming into the world? Well, the blessings of Christ coming into the world is summed up in a couple of ways. Number one, we enjoy fellowship with deity. Number two, we enjoy fellowship with disciples. In order to enjoy fellowship with, with the disciples, we have to first of all have fellowship with deity. Fellowship works two ways. First of all, it is vertical in nature. The way we enjoy fellowship with Almighty God is by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John is saying, that which we have seen and heard, we're declaring to you that you may have fellowship with us. And then he goes on to say, For truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When you and I respond out of faith with a penitent heart and are immersed in water, we become one with Christ. We are said to be married to Christ in Romans chapter 7 at verse 4. We enjoy a very intimate relationship with the Lord. God is our Father. In 1 John chapter 3 at verse 1, John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children or the sons of God. We have fellowship with the Lord. Not only do we have fellowship with the Lord, but we enjoy fellowship with one another. Think about what is said in Acts 2, verse 42. Speaking of the early church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. Peter talks about how we are people of like precious faith in 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. The faith that you and I have, there, there is a common bond that exists between us. That common bond it's based on Christ. It's based on what Christ has done on our behalf. We believe the same thing. We practice the same thing. We honor the same God. We worship the same God. When Paul wrote to, to the saints in Corinth, one of the problems that they faced was division. And Paul said the remedy for division is that God's people all speak the same thing. Well, you and I, we're people of like precious faith. And as a result of that, we believe and practice the same thing. At least that's the goal. And so there is fellowship with the Lord and with the Lord's people. But there's also a third thing that we see in our lesson text. Beginning in verse 5 and following, John talks about 
some obligations that have been imposed upon believers. Now, what you need to understand is John is writing to Christians here. He's not writing to non-Christians. Now, when we read 1 John, we need to understand, we need to, to understand it in that context. Because there are, there are a couple of things that we're going to be talking about, particularly in the realm of forgiveness. And so, the third thing that I want to underscore tonight is forgiveness in Christ. Our forgiveness or pardon has been made possible through Jesus Christ. The obligations that have been entrusted unto us are obedience. And so look at verse 5. In verse 5, John said, This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. What is my responsibility as a child of God? In, in other words, what does the Lord demand of us? He demands of us that we strive to the best of our ability to live faithfully in his sight. And so when John talks about walking in the light, he is stressing the fact that as the people of God, we're walking in harmony with the will of God. We're following the teaching of the Bible. Can we know that we're in step with the Lord? Can we know that we have a relationship with God Almighty? Absolutely. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So you and I, we can know whether or not we are in step or out of step with the Lord. But what about this idea of walking in the light? Sometimes individuals feel very insecure in their Christianity. And there are people that sometimes labor under the illusion that we're saved today, lost tomorrow, saved the next day, lost the next day, etc. If you're walking in the light, if you're doing your best to live a faithful, obedient life in Christ. What John is saying is the blood of Christ is availing in your life. Somebody says, I'm not perfect. I understand that. We're not talking about perfection. No one is perfect. What John is saying is that we need to strive to live a life conducive to New Testament Christianity. Well, what if I stumble and fall? Somebody might ask that question. Well, Jane, or rather John, is going to address that. And so first of all, there is confession. We're talking about children of God here. So look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, drop down, if you would, in chapter 2. In verse 1, John said, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. That is the divine ideal, that we rise above sin. Well, what happens if we succumb to temptation? What happens if we stumble and fall? You ever fallen? You ever made a mistake? You ever said or done something you wished you hadn't said or done? Absolutely. Why? Because you're a human being. And as human beings, we are infallible. 
are rather fallible. We're not infallible. God is infallible, but we are fallible beings. We make mistakes. And so John said, My little children, these things are right to you that you may not sin, but, he said, if anyone sins, let him know he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ functions as our attorney, if you please, in heaven. And he is pleading our case in the presence of God. And based on his sacrifice on Calvary, the shedding of his blood, you and I, when we stumble and fall, that blood cleanses us from sin. So there is, first of all, confession and then cleansing. Note again what John said. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you thankful for Christ? Aren't you thankful that we serve a loving God? Sometimes individuals, I think, ha have the idea that if they, if that if they make the that if they make a mistake and they stumble and fall, that that God delights in that. That's not the case at all. God wants us to do our very best, but there are provisions set aside for us when we succumb to temptation, when we fall short of the will of God. What are we called upon to do? Confess our sins? That's what John is saying here. If we confess our sins, we can do that privately and publicly. We talk about sins that are public in nature that everybody knows about when we bring shame and reproach upon the church. What can we do? Well, we can pray. We can ask for the prayers of the church. James talks about confess your faults, confess your sins one to another. Pray one for another. And in that context, he's talking about a public confession. Can you and I ask others to pray for us? Absolutely. That's God's second law of pardon. I said a moment ago that John is writing to Christians here. Sometimes individuals have the idea that all they have to do, if they've never obeyed the gospel, is just say the sinner's prayer and God will save them. That, that's not in the New Testament. What we do read in the New Testament is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, John 8, 24, confess his name before others, Matthew 10, 32. Be immersed in water. When we do that, God then adds us to the church, Acts 2, 47. We are numbered among the saved, Ephesians 5, verse 23. And if we fall short of the will of God, then we employ what John said in verse 9. We confess our sins. And what's God going to do? He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know the beauty of Christianity? is that when we turn from a life of sin and we begin living for the Lord, whatever we've done in the past is in the past. We live under a covenant that Jeremiah in the long ago said concerning God, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. When we're baptized into Christ, our sins are hurled into infinity. 
when we obey the gospel and we're striving to live a Christian life and we stumble and fall and we ask God to forgive us, He cleanses us and those sins are hurled into infinity. We never again meet them. What a great blessing. You and I, we need to understand Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He is the real deal. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our adoration. He is worthy of following. I can promise you this. If you'll follow the Lord, the quality of your life will improve. There are people in our world today whose lives are filled with disappointment, heartache, suffering, anxiety, and the list goes on and on. But when you become a follower of the Lord, you're following somebody who can truly make a difference in your life. He is said to be the anchor of the soul in Hebrews chapter 6 at about verse 19. That anchor of the soul is said to be sure and steadfast. What you and I need to do is turn to Him and live for Him. We must live for him who died for us. There are a lot of people in our world, sadly, that do not believe in the Christ. He was a person. He is a person of history. It's documented. Not only can you read secular history, but you can read the scriptures. And they will provide you with the portrait of the Christ. And when you begin reading this book, you come face to face with the Son of God, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. He's the real deal. And I would encourage you to follow him, to live for him. John was trying to bolster the faith of these saints in the first century. Sometimes because of the world, our faith suffers. Sometimes because of, of the difficulties of life, our faith takes a hit. And what John is saying and what other New Testament writers are saying is you need to put your faith and trust in the Lord. You need to live for Him. And if you live for Him and die in Him, you'll have the hope of life eternal. Tonight we close by asking the question, what about you? Are you living for the Lord? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? The Bible encourages us to come to Christ. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is interested in you as an individual. He wants you to be saved. But you have to believe the claims of Scripture. You have to understand that Jesus of Nazareth truly lived, and He lives today. He is at the Father's right hand, and one day the Bible says He will come again. And when He comes again, those who are in Christ will go home to be with the Lord forevermore. In a place where John said there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, all these things, He said, are passed away. Is that appealing to you? Why not be immersed in Christ tonight? Wash away your sins. If you're in Christ but you're not faithful, why not come home? Let us pray with you and for you. God will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.